Hello, and welcome to the DER Task Force, a show where we, your co-hosts, explain the different ways distributed energy resources are impacting the clean energy transition. Today, we will be discussing public safety power shutoffs and the role DERs can play in the solution. Here to join me are my two co-hosts, James McGinnis, CEO of David Energy, and Duncan Campbell, VP of Project Development at Scale Microgrid Solutions. I'm gonna hand it over to Duncan to give us an intro on the background of public safety power shutoffs and how DERs can help. So wildfires in California and public safety power shutoffs were really our first topic in this meetup. If I remember correctly, we were in James's WeWork. <laughs> yeah, no at the, before, <laughs> before the office, yeah. And, and before of all, WeWork's uh, issues. Yeah, um, that too. So I, I gave a presentation on sort of a, a forward-looking view on what might happen and how DERs could be a part of that. And it, it was largely based on the plans that PG&E and the CPUC and the CEC and everybody else had put together or kind of the, the lack thereof. That was sort of the presentation's point that this was a, a massive issue that we sort of were just going to see what happens. And that, that didn't seem the right, like the right approach at the time. Right. So, and importantly, it was before we had any of the actual shutoffs that came later. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, well, there were sort of all these like doomsday type uh, predictions. Um, there's this one quote from Michael Picker, uh, the former uh, president of the CPUC. That's just, I don't know. It, it, I find it very striking. He said, uh, this was, I believe this was at his speech when he announced his retirement, although that may be wrong. I believe this was. Um, Got out at the right time, I guess. And he said, given the changes we're seeing in weather and changes that we're seeing in fire fuels, nobody who lives in a wildfire hazard zone should count on a warning or should count on having reliable electricity. And then he retired. <laughs> oh, Dropped the mic. And yeah, that's a, some kind of mic drop, I guess. I, I think that's, I mean, that's, that was pretty shocking to me. So we had kind of, as a company, begun exploring this issue quite a ways before this time. Duncan, this can you summer. give us a little bit of background on Scale Microgrid Solutions? Sure, yeah. Um, so basically, we, we build, you know, single off-taker microgrids. So not really the community scale type microgrid, but you could think of it as, you know, similar to a, just a normal solar installation or a normal backup generator, but we're just sort of combining everything. So not necessarily the vision of like, you know, a couple city blocks relying on their own source of power. This is more so just a, an evolution of the existing distributed energy model. Um, so we're doing it for, you know, large commercial, small industrial, everything from a supermarket to a you know, small data center, stuff like that. Duncan's being modest. Scale's building some of the coolest microgrids out there right now. Big James fan. Yeah, <laughs> not Duncan. That's exciting to hear. Though. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to start with just a little background on the fire risk in general, right? The, the underpinning of all of this is there's a lot of fires in California and it seems like they're getting worse. And that's what predicated all of this public safety power shutoff stuff. And, and this is sort of how I led the, the meetup presentation last time. 2017 then was basically the, the deadliest and, and most destructive wildfire season California had on record. A number of folks died at 47, I think is the up-to-date number. Uh, 1.3 million acres burned, 
almost 10,000 homes and businesses were destroyed and there were over $13 billion of insured losses. Then in 2018, the deadliest and most destructive wildfire season on record occurred again. This time, almost twice as many people died. 1.9 million acres were burned. 19,000 homes and businesses were destroyed and it's believed that number is, is low and uh, about 12 billion in insured losses. So that was sort of the, the backdrop of this. We had two incredibly destructive wildfire seasons in California. Well, and so a key point too was that the utility distribution grid was actually starting these fires, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, that was, that's sort of what we'll get into here, which is in these regions where fires were occurring, there were over 250,000 plus miles of uh, overhead power lines. If you look between 2014 and 2017 at the data, there were about 2,000 utility ignition events in those years. That's about 1.5 ignition events per day. If you have 1.5 ignitions per day, that doesn't mean you have 1.5 wildfires per day. Uh, nothing near <laughs> it. I think what had had folks really concerned is, you know, if you suppose a, a warmer climate and stronger Santa Ana winds and all of this, any of those ignitions could become one of these wildfires. And if you're sort of increasing the probability of that, that gets kind of scary. If you have this many ignitions, you have all the opportunity in the world for something to start. Ultimately, sort of financially terrible for PG&E, right? These, these two years, their implication in starting these wildfires led to uh, their bankruptcy, a long proceeding which is still going on, the plan for public safety power shutoffs to prevent future wildfires, um, their stock taking a very wild ride and, and ending up uh, in, in, a, in a place currently that despite recently has gone up a bit on some news of a deal being struck, uh, certainly is, is massively devalued relative to where it was before. For those who are newer to the energy industry, utility stocks are generally viewed as something that's a very stable and sort of good long-term investment. And this is kind of shaken, I think, all utility stocks. Around. The reason for the bankruptcy is that the utility is being held liable for all those insured losses, essentially. Yeah, and and, and actually, a, a, I think a deal was was just recently struck that would structure how PG&E would pay out some of those losses. Frankly, I don't know much about the deal; it's so new. But you know, as always, there's there's some folks who think it makes sense, some folks who think it's egregious, and probably everywhere in between. So to Colleen's point, you know, is this a signal to kind of other utilities around the country that that they're going to be held liable? Like, do you know which regulatory body stepped in and said, "Hey, you know, PG&E, you gotta you gotta pay up"? And was was this sort so, of some new precedent that was formed, or was it uh, was that did everyone kind of know this? They just were hoping they were too big to fail or something like that. There was a state law in California around inverse condemnation that made utilities legally liable for wildfires. When and was that, that actually is, and that was pre these 2017-2018 wildfires, which is part of why PG&E is so on the hook for all the damages. And they've actually, I think to Duncan's point, that's what they've sort of been working to change the wording of that. PG&E obviously plays a role um, in all of this, but as you said before, and I think it's been reported on sort of widely, there's other contributing factors of, poor forestry management, climate change creating drier 
areas, warmer temperatures, higher wind events, and then development and overdevelopment in sort of dense forest areas that are now having these grid lines sort of extended out into them. And so I think when you bring all four of those things together, I think putting utilities 100% on the hook for the fire is an interesting question. It's like how, what percent of the fire are they to blame for? Yeah, I think that's sort of what's at, at the center of the debate, which we'll get into a bit more. You know, in New York, we had Hurricane Sandy and a lot of policy changes emerged out of that. Is this sort of concern for utilities sort of limited um, to to California? Or uh, can we expect that, you know, whatever kind of emerges out of this crisis sort of ripples throughout the utility industry in general. And so an example would be, even in New York, there are times when Con Ed shuts down the power or or the grid's stressed. And I, I don't think there's quite as much of a liability issue in, in Con Ed territory or outside of wildfire areas. You know, no risk of bankruptcy, but there is just this question of our, our grids aging, our distribution grid is aging, and how are we going to deal with this problem in general? And I, I think you right. know, the California issue is a very acute example of this. And, and so we should be watching very closely. Yeah, I think what utilities are having to think about, right, is not necessarily, am I going to be legally liable for wildfires, which is not certainly only a California thing, but a majority California event at this time. But how does the changing climate or the increased storm weather that we're seeing impact how a utility needs to adapt to these scenarios? And Right in Manhattan, especially where a lot of the grids are underground, one of the sort of unforeseen issues of really high temperatures over periods of time is that it gets really, really hot under there. And so there's actually decreased, can be decreased performance for wires that are undergrounded in a way that I don't think people had really thought of before because those temperatures just hadn't really been hit in areas where we have a lot of underground wires. And that creates different stressors. So Colleen, this may actually be a great chance for you to talk about, you work for a utility, uh, you know, to the extent that you can maybe talk to how Con Ed is, is transferring uh, the wildfire issue to maybe how they see how things are going. Yeah. So as always, I'll be speaking on my own personal beliefs and not on the <laughs> beliefs of where I work, but I did go to a utility, um, largely because I think they are the ones having to grapple with a lot of these issues. And I wanted to sort of be part of a community that was working on that space. And so at a lot of Northeast utilities, the concerns, right, are more around how we deal with flood events. Uh, I think, you know, Sandy obviously created a lot of flooding, not just for utility spaces, but also backup generators uh, were often put on first floors or in basements. And so a lot of backup generators failed during Sandy because they got flooded. And so we're dealing with a different set of issues there. And I think a lot of what uh, New York Rev or the reforming the energy vision, which was state vision for how New York would move forward after Sandy to create different innovative business models and get more resilience on the grid, was really focused a lot on how we can serve customers in a different way and how utilities can change their business model, right? And I think that's one of the things that a lot of this is driving is how if a utility whose sole job is to provide reliable power at the cheapest price possible um, can no longer provide power with 100% reliability or the 99% reliability that we generally do have, how does that change the structure and nature of what a utility is providing and how do you price for that? 
I think one of the really interesting things about California is, right, as you have less reliable power, PG&E's costs are also going up because they have to deal with this aging infrastructure. And so you're potentially going to be getting worse service with higher costs. You know, just to bring it back here in a bit, yeah. I want to I want to go further into this conversation, you know, as we progress, but different hazards for different utility regions, but these sort of natural disasters in a way are are really driving how we view building grid infrastructure and what what role the utility plays in that. New York has its approach that, you know, people forget people in New Jersey and parts of Long Island didn't have power for a month after Hurricane yep. Sandy. I so, was in New Jersey at the time. Exactly. I and was out of power for a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah not, was, not a good situation. And and we expect, you know, hurricanes to strengthen because of climate change and all this all this stuff that these problems aren't going anywhere, right? Yeah. So, and New I York's think, policy actually emerged out of Hurricane Sandy. They said, we're going to deploy DERs. We're going to build a grid that can handle them because basically because of Hurricane Sandy was sort of the event that kicked it off. And I think you know, the wildfires are really interesting because that's this is happening in California now, right? right? We're asking this question in real time. Yeah. And I think one of the things to sort of bring it back to the distributed energy resources and what they can provide. So when Hurricane Sandy happened, I was living in Princeton, New Jersey, working at a, a small company there doing like energy efficiency evaluation. And my power was out, but Princeton University has a microgrid. And so I walked the 15 minutes over the campus the day after Hurricane Sandy, went into a building, charged up all my devices, downloaded some movies, went back home, you know, lit my candles at home, and uh, I was set for the night. And it was so great because I had the ability to benefit from a microgrid space and to sort of have that there while I didn't have power at home. I had somewhere I could go and sort of hang out. DERs for the win. Yeah. Um, I, I think I think Duncan, uh, this is a great way to kind of kick it back to you and say, kind of where are we now with like the suite of solutions? You know, obviously as the DER task force, we're gonna say go DERs, but I don't think we should be dogmatic about this. I've truly kind of listened to all the other solutions being proposed and tried to sort of steel man those arguments and and maybe say, uh, you know, DERs aren't the solution, but I, I just can't help but come back to DERs really are our best bet or will be sort of the leading solution um, to pull us out of this mess in California. Uh, you know, of course, there's a lot of other things that need to be done in parallel, but as far as the people being immediately impacted today who are gearing up for more public safety power shutoffs this summer, really their best bet is, is to call a company like yours or Sunrun or whoever, or Tesla, whoever it may be, and, and try and get some DERs deployed in their home or business to avoid, you know, the next round of, of public safety power shutoffs. So there's sort of like the macro of what we need to do politically. Uh, but then there's also just the people on the ground who are really feeling the brunt of this and, and what can they do? And, and, you know, we want something that's going to take a year or two, not 15. So can you speak maybe a bit to what the different set of solutions are and then maybe dig into specifically in California how DERs can help? I think to do that it's important to first sort of characterize the risk here. I, I think like the, the most relevant question is why is PG&E or SCE, why have they only just started to shut off the power? What's different, right? And it kind of goes back to this inverse domination point. I believe the 60s or the 70s 
and it basically holds utilities to a strict liability standard for any damages they cause, whether through negligence or otherwise. Since the 60s or 70s, whenever this came about, PG&E, Southern California Edison, SDG&E, they were generally okay with that law because simultaneously the courts had held that they were allowed to socialize the burden of that liability. So essentially, if uh, they were exposed to a certain liability because of damages they caused, they could raise electricity rates to cover that liability and essentially put it back into society. After all of these wildfires and just the the sort of scale and, and magnitude of the damages that occurred, there were grumblings politically that we weren't going to let them socialize this burden this time. And that's when uh, the utilities became um, less friendly to inverse condemnation and it became this huge issue. If you believe you're not able to socialize that burden, then it does make a lot of sense to preemptively shut off the power, right? Before when, you know, costs would, you'd be exposed to costs and then you could just raise rates and recover those costs. You know, the, the risk to the to the bottom line for for the business is pretty low. In 17 and 18, there was almost $30 billion in damages and PG&E's revenue is I think about 13 billion a year, right? So I think also just thinking about the scale, it's not just, you know, oh, we'll recover some costs if they're being held liable for the entirety of all the damages. You know, it's three X of what they make in a year. Exactly. So you can see why there was both perhaps a, a growing desire for those costs not to be socialized just because they're so large. And you can also see why it's such a huge issue for the utility, um, because if you can't socialize those costs anymore, then your business doesn't really make sense. If you're incurring you know, $30 billion of damages when your revenues and certainly your profits are, are nowhere near that annually. So, so that's sort of the backdrop of what, when we think about solutions to to this problem, to preventing wildfires or dealing with the ultimate tool for wildfires, preventing them, which is public safety power shutoffs. They need to cover this risk that used to be sort of almost non-existent. It was a risk, but financially it wasn't a great concern. Whereas now it's almost this binary issue where we don't want any wildfires caused by utilities because any costs created by them potentially not going to be able to be socialized uh, in the way they, they once were. So the, the first and obvious solution to this is public safety power shutoffs. And that, that's simply just, this risk is binary, we're going to prevent it from happening. So can you just briefly explain what a public safety power shutoff is? You know, what it actually means for customers, right? So first, public safety power shutoffs, they haven't been used super commonly. Even in the 2017 and 2018 wildfire seasons, there were instances of them occurring, just at a much smaller scale. And I I forget which utility pioneered this, but it it was a California utility who sort of came up with this years and years ago and really sparingly would use it. I mean, I think Con Ed just did it. I'm not sure if that was the same. I I don't have the background there. I think they shut down certain regions just because the grid was stressed. Like it was like a, you know, preventative blackout in a way. Right. So I think that maybe we should make a distinction though between a preventative blackout, which would just be an outage for large for more customers. And so you're targeting where you choose to have mm-hmm. a blackout and a public safety power shut off where you're preemptively turning off power, not because you cannot deliver it, but because the risk right. to the public safety is yes. too high. Right. right. Um, it's a little bit of an 
either way, your power is getting shut off. So it right. feels but from it was a like, customer perspective the it's same. It's not but... unprecedented that the utility is like, we're shutting your power off because there's issues. Like, I guess is the, you know, this right. isn't some crazy new thing, but the scale of it certainly is. And I think the duration as well. Yeah. So Duncan, can you talk about like, what is it two to five days or what is the utility actually telling customers? It's like 10 times a year, you can expect your power to be off for two to five days at a time. Yeah, is that so, right? I mean, it sounds outrageous, but. Well, it, it, it's, it's a little complicated, but basically, yeah. As the public safety power shutoffs tool became um, considered to be, you know, one of the primary tools that will be used to prevent these, these utility ignited wildfires. The, the utilities put together an estimate of what, what that would actually mean. How many of these events would there be? What would their duration be? What would trigger them? So the idea is there are basically humidity and wind speed targets. And any time those variables reach certain levels in a certain combination, it would justify a public safety power shutoff because those are the times where both conditions are ripe for a line getting knocked over, either directly by wind or maybe wind knocks over a tree, which knocks over a line. And then when that line falls, it, it's sparking a fire. Uh, so because of the low humidity and it being sort of easy for that fire to pick up speed, be whipped up by the wind and become an actual wildfire as opposed to just some little ignition. So they, they put together these these estimates. And initially, I, I believe it, it came out in the spring of 2019. The estimate was in the high threat fire districts. And, and there's a map which shows these, but there's basically you know, uh, like a level one, two, and three type fire map where, where these wildfires are highly likely to occur. They expected 15 or more public safety power shutoff events per year of a duration from anywhere from two to five days. And what drives the duration is, one, you have to shut off the grid before these weather conditions actually take place, right? Because you can't just sort of wait until they're there because you might have waited too long. Second, you have to keep the grid shut off throughout the entirety of the time that those weather conditions exist. Third, when, they, when those weather conditions uh, go away, you still need to keep it off for a small period of time to make sure they're away. And then fourth, and, and this is what's really kind of crazy about the whole thing, and this sort of came out of their, their bankruptcy court, is that then all of the lines that were shut down need to be inspected because they still might have sustained damage during these high wind events and when re-energized they perhaps could could create an ignition you know if if there's 25,000 miles of lines that are affected that that could substantially increase the duration of this outage that was the prediction 15 times a year two to five days each but specifically in the high threat fire well so, so and let me just say in california this i'm looking the, at the map now and you know tier two and tier three combined so tier two is elevated tier three is extreme is like half of california this isn't just you know some podoc town out in the desert it's like hot very you know populated areas that this is actually happening yeah it turns out it's it's pretty hard to have a wildfire in the desert um, <laughs> right. but the, so so I, I don't know if it's 
tier two or tier And I just three. showed the extent of my California geography, by the way. So I apologize <laughs> to anyone I just offended. But well, we're, we're, this is, we're all New Yorkers and probably don't know at all yeah. what's going on in California. But yeah. so, so I'm not sure if it's tier two or tier three, but what are considered high threat fire districts that it might be both of those combined. It might just be tier three. I'm not sure. Well, it's elevated and extreme is how they classify it on the map. Okay, yeah. So I, I'm not sure of the exact sort of breakdown there, but for they're the, orange and red, man. It, they both look bad. I'm just saying. <laughs> so for these high threat ones, yeah, um, yeah. It, there's there's 11 million people who live and work in those districts. Wow. I think that's the the sort of top tier of of threat district. And do you know um, that includes the people who like? I know in the public safety power shutoffs, there's a lot of towns where they'd be like, "But I don't understand. It's not windy here." but basically the transmission mm -hmm. line that it ran through was really windy and had low humidity. Does that 11 million include those people? No, so that, that's a really good point. The, the 11 million is just literally the number of people in these districts where there are likely to be fires when, when the conditions are right. But what you just brought up is a great point. You could have a transmission line or a, just a long distribution line going through a high threat fire district that feeds a non-high threat fire district and when that line is shut down so as not to cause a utility ignition the the area it feeds which might not be you know exposed to wildfire risk will lose its power and so there were there were a lot of comments like this the the wind is is you know is, isn't very strong at all why is our power off and it's probably because the, that community is fed by a line where that wasn't the case maybe a line that goes over a small mountain range or something that has high altitude winds. It, it, it's really complex. So yeah, that 11 million number is, is not a perfectly accurate way to, I guess, express who's exposed to this PSPS issue. Right, and, and so the other side of this, right, I th I'm pretty sure I saw a story this summer uh, when, when the public safety power shutoffs were going on is this is not a perfect solution. There still were ignition events in areas where that we're experiencing public safety power shutoffs, right? So this is by no means like a perfect solution. Uh, it's really kind of a mess. You know, we're not in a good place, I guess. Our, our yeah. best solution doesn't, is not uh, perfect. Yeah, and, and to be fair, I mean, this is, this is a DERs podcast, right? But there were also <laughs> uh, fires caused by DERs uh, during the utility. Yeah, we should uh, probably talk about shutoffs. that too. Yeah, uh, it's 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 pretty common for folks during power outages to, you know, in a, in a rushed manner, buy a backup generator, maybe hook it up improperly, or hook up their you know twenty six year old backup generator. They so you're saying these service. were not built by scale microgrids, of course. Oh, definitely not. No, call scale microgrids. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but the, you know this happens, and so there's either electrical fires or fuel, you know, like gasoline or diesel based fires that. That happened and I don't think any of them were sort of massive in nature um, but but they do happen and it, it's a real risk you have to consider if your solution is to push people to their own energy production I do think it's important to establish then what actually happened right 15 right. events per year two to five days each but like what actually happened right um, yep and it was sort of in some ways better in some ways worse uh, the the number the sheer quantity of PSPS events didn't end up being, you know, everybody in these districts had over 15 events. Um, although the year's not over, it's the 23rd. Uh, but I, I think that's sort of how it's going to play out. 
there were really two big events. Now there were a bunch of little ones and I actually haven't found an exhaustive list of all of these events, but there were, there were two big ones that really stirred up the conversation around these things. Uh, the first was in uh, early October, so sort of the ninth between the 11th. This, this affected about 2 million estimated PG&E customers, which for reference is about 12.5% of their entire customer base. And when I say customers, I'm referring to people, not meters. So 2 million customers is you know, some lesser quantity of, of bills or meters that were affected. Um, it also affected, I think, 13,000 Southern California uh, SCE customers. It spanned about 25,000 miles of PG&E power lines. So there's a lot of inspection to do uh, to get the power back up and running. There's some estimated economic cost costs, and obviously this is tough stuff to quantify, but uh, one estimate I came across was uh, this cost California's economy $2.6 billion. And, and frankly, just people were outraged. Uh, as expected, the, the public wasn't really educated on this to the extent they needed to be, to not be angry. And they're probably going to be angry no matter what. And that's not me necessarily even blaming the utilities. No one was really up to speed on this when it happened and it was a big shock. So was this the one in the Bay Area? No, that, that was later, um, later in the month. That was sort of the second big one. This sort of just started all of the the, the outrage about these events. Right. Um, and there's a bunch of anecdotes and stories about it you know, I know like grocery stores were particularly hit hard by this, um, but there were all sorts of issues. Um, Scott Weiner, he's a um, he's a he's a state senator, uh, San Francisco Democrat. You know, he was sort of saying this was completely unacceptable state of affairs. There, there were all these big pronouncements, but, but right, the, it's almost like PG and E told everyone what they were going to do, and then everyone was very surprised when they did it. Exactly. Right. Yes. yes. And this is what we as a company were trying to harp on for, you know, six, eight months was the PG&E has actually been pretty clear about this, right? They've said, look, if, if this is sort of the, the, the wildfire threat we're facing and this is how it's going to play out economically, we have to shut off the power and here's our estimate of how many times we'll do it. And everyone just sort of said, okay, and, and moved on. It, it would, and, you know, maybe fought about the economics of it and who will bear, you know, previous liabilities, but no plan was ever really made with how are we going to deal with these, you know, mass widespread long duration outages. And so frankly, you, you, you could expect that everyone was sort of enraged when it happened. You started seeing on Twitter, like in San Francisco, all the, all the VCs getting on saying, where's Uber for electricity, <laughs> which everyone was making fun of, but I for one actually think is a great thing because it's attracting you know, this is sort of opportunistic, but, you know, attracting attention and, and funding and money into this space for solutions. Like now that people feel it, the conversation can actually be had, right? Like, right. We always wish it could happen before you have. Exactly. I'm not saying I'm glad events, the fires happen. Once it happens, you want people to actually be paying attention. If we're going to find a power shut off, right. it's doing that. If we're going to find a silver lining here, it's that the conversation feels much more real now. Since maybe when you even presented to us, you were saying, hey guys, I think this is gonna happen. And even we were like, oh, like how bad's it really gonna be? Turns out it's pretty bad, you know? And, and everyone knows that now. Yeah, and so the, the second big event was, was exactly that, where the sort of Bay Area got hit and you saw all these, 
yeah, v VCs or just, you know, Silicon Valley tech industry folks or thought leaders getting affected by this and sort of being shocked, <laughs> which uh, for, for, for an energy nerd was like <laughs> sort of, I don't want to say funny because it's actually a really difficult situation, but uh, there's always this perception I have that folks forget about the grid and the energy system and what actually makes it sort of tick uh, until it's a problem, right? And you, you saw that. And so, so the 25th through 27th, about 3 million people were impacted in PG&E territory. And there, there were some tacked on sort of before that and some after that, because these things don't sort of perfectly happen in a discrete way. Uh, but th this one was huge. And, and yeah, as, as James, you mentioned, it, it seemed to really get a ton of press. And there was already sort of a conversation around it that started from the previous one. So that this kind of got whipped up quickly into a, into a huge deal. Right. And, and I think it's worth noting, too, that a lot of people in California have solar, but unless solar is specifically configured to work when you have a power outage, I think also a lot of people were discovering that they had solar and that did not continue to work when their grid was down, mm -hmm. which probably also led to a lot of confusion and consternation. I know I've seen that a lot in other areas when they've been hit by bad storms and they're sort of like, my solar, I'm getting sun, but I'm not getting electricity. And like, why is that happening to me? Uh, which I think can just contribute to this idea that people understand their electricity grid until they don't. That solar issue is, is, is persistent. It seems uh, every time there's an outage, there's a new batch of solar customers who realize their system, unless specifically meant to deal with outages, won't. <laughs> well, yeah, it also gets into when we're installing DERs, what we're configuring them for. And obviously a big part of that is like policy, net metering. However, you know, that customer is being compensated for their solar. Are you going to pay extra to configure it for off-grid events? Sort of starts getting at the question, you know, I could go on all day about 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 this like the more technical issue of how to run solar off-grid but to avoid that maybe because i'm actually not super um informed on this is obviously now you can walk up to buildings or grocery stores that have felt these effects and say i'm going to build you a microgrid and and they start uh the conversation is probably much easier to have from from like a sales standpoint in a way but what about sort of the policy that can policies that can help, you know, DERs get installed. The DERs that do get installed, they can be used uh, in public safety power shutoff events. You know, can you speak to a bit sort of the role that policy in the market itself has to play in those, <laughs> whether it's the solar customers who don't get power when when the grid uh, goes off, or or as we're looking at this set of solutions, how are we trying to push? island mode DERs forward? I mean, my perspective is, you know, 2020 is the first year that new development is going to be required to have solar in California, right? It's like the new state law coming into effect. I almost want to say add storage as a requirement onto that in areas that meet this high right. risk public safety power shutoff event, because a state could probably pay for that. And it would probably, and you know, would probably be cheaper than them having to set up shelters in certain areas. I think those are the types of things we should be thinking about. It's like, how do we, how do we capitalize on investment that's already happening and that we're already mandating to help us in the areas where we need it? Yeah, California could be building the perfect 
cocktail of a pissed off customer, which is we're going to mandate that you install these assets that, you know, everyone's electricity bills will, will, you know, very likely go up as a result of all this investment. Right. And guess what? Your power is still not going to work. Right. So the power is still going to shut off. So if if, I'm kind of with you uh, on that point is, you know, if we're going to be driving these solutions, you know, California has all these clean energy goals. They're pushing more rooftop solar. We really need to have the public safety power shutoffs or systems that can keep running when the grid is down as a very central part of this conversation. And I don't think it has been really. Yeah. And I guess actually before we get down too too far down the road of, of how DERs can contribute, I guess just worth like summarizing that the California wildfires are like showing some issues with our centralized grid system, right? Where by sending power um, over aging infrastructure across really, really large territories that are hard to maintain, um, we've run into this issue where utility wires are often creating these really horrific fires. And distributed energy resources specifically can help because even if you're in a public safety power shutoff circumstance, if you can create the power locally, in theory, you'd be able to keep your area up and running, perhaps just on critical services if you don't have enough power to run everyone on full, you know, on all of their services. So maybe you can't watch TV, but, you know, you can keep your oxygen supply on if you are someone who relies on oxygen, right? And so thinking through how you create those local systems where you'll actually to the point of the solar that would shut off where you can actually be running in island mode which is what's often referred to when you can run when the grid is not supplying power to your home or business can help alleviate some of these economic and potential life-threatening impacts of the PSPS. Right. And that's where the conversation becomes really interesting, right? As as you pointed out, you know, and as we've covered before, we've kind of always built our grid in this centralized way. And that was, you know, due to technological constraints and there wasn't a wildfire problem. But now we have all these new technologies, which are so fundamentally different than that system. Like think even Duncan's comments, maybe you get lost in the stats, but think of what 25,000 miles of wires is. Like think of a hundred mile car trip that you went on. Like how vast these territories are, right? And the promise of DERs is that you don't need those wires, which are starting the fires, right? So if you put solar on your roof, a generator in your backyard, battery storage to an extent to help balance that out, uh, even smart thermostats to help lower load during certain times or whatever it is you may need to you know, make the whole system work. If you're using power where you're installing it or where you're generating it, you don't need the wires that are causing the problem in the first place. But for all the people out there who may be excited about this, they call it uh, off-gridding where I build enough solar on my house or in my backyard that I don't even need the grid anymore. That is mm-hmm. prohibitively expensive. <laughs> It'll happen in very edge cases, but it is not a solution, right? The bulk grid right. is still a good thing. But the, the question now emerging is like, if we're able to now build these distributed resources, you know, there's more room for solar and wind over here than over there. Obviously, there's still some like connections going on between, you know, power and where we generate and where we use it. But those distances, the 25,000 miles that Duncan referenced may be able to shrink a very large degree, maybe to the degree that it helps dig us out of this mess. Different regulatory framework, a different way of how we think about uh, building infrastructure, a different utility business model, right? When it gets into 
socializing risk and all these other questions that we brought up in the beginning, you know, we're, we're at a point right now where we're, we're forced to fundamentally rethink how we architect our grid, right? And, and this conversation is being driven by this very immediate crisis that we're in. So, yeah. And I, I think, and I think that's totally right. I and mean, there's like this change in, in, pol- in policy and, and how utility business models work that is sort of this ongoing conversation that needs to happen. But I guess what I'm kind of curious about, Duncan, is, you know, right now in today's current world, like there are a lot of customers presumably who are saying, I want my power on during this public safety power shutoff. How do I do that? So what, I guess, are you seeing or is your perspective on how you approach a customer that's trying to figure out how to stay on? Yeah. So one, I guess, thing to point out here is I only work with commercial and industrial customers. So it's, I think it's a bit different than residential customers. So I'll just sort of throw that out there up front, but really our our business in California right now, we're, we're talking to all, all sorts of customers, right? The supermarkets, uh, small data centers, uh, some schools, just really across the board. And we're, we're selling against diesel generators, right? That like, that's the status quo solution. That's what you can buy quickly and install. Well, so can you talk about that briefly that that was sort of even part of the, you know, from a regulatory framework or from whatever the utilities were saying, sort of the public discourse was like, we need to install more DERs, right? Which in this scenario were, were mainly generators, right? Is this like sort of a bottom up people are buying the generators or, was this sort of, is this sort of being pushed in a way too by like the, the state of the conversation? Um, I, I don't think it's being pushed strongly by any policy or anything like that. Although there were some plans for the PSPS that involved like tons of mobile generators sort of being like brought out in fleets to areas that were affected. But just for, you know, forever, diesel generators have been the status quo resilience solution. And so if you don't have a plan other than them, they're what's going to happen. Um, and not necessarily because they're always the most economic, but they're, it's the status quo solution. It's, it's simple, it's pretty, there are very little upfront costs, um, at least relative to a microgrid. Uh, it, it, it's simple and it, the other big thing is it's quick. Right? If it's December 23rd and you're worried about next year's fire season, you can have a backup generator installed in a, in a few months after you purchase it. Uh, a microgrid might be tougher, right? So that's what we're out there competing with. Um, so, so folks will get this resilience one way or the other, unless it isn't of value to them. Uh, the question is, will they get a form of resilience that is sort of in line with our social goals, with what, what we're trying to do here? Um, and I, I don't think diesel generators, especially ones that are actually going to run a lot, are in line with our social goals necessarily. You mean, you mean from an emissions climate change standpoint, of yeah, course? The, the, the whole thing. And I mean, from a cost thing also, yeah, cost perspective, you know, the, this is, this is sort of, it only adds, if you sort of sum up all of the costs of the power system, kind of forgetting who's paying for what, but just we're delivering a certain amount of electricity and here's how much it costs. Backup generators only add cost, right? You buy them, you fuel them, you maintain them. Um, but they they don't actually produce any savings, right? Whereas um, a, a well-designed microgrid, you know, not and, and that's sort of a big asterisk there, actually has an economic value proposition, right? It net reduces costs while also providing resilience to 
this scenario where you're just sort of buying a big box that sits in the parking lot and then occasionally fueling it and maintaining it. And I think that what's worth noting there is that diesel generators in California are not allowed to run unless it's for yes. an emergency as backup power. So they can't bid into the, the grid or anything the way that distributed energy resources that were part of a cleaner microgrid could. Yeah, yeah. Even, you know, in the Northeast, there's, and, and I'm not an expert on this, but there are certain tiers of emissions for diesel generators that can participate in like DR. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, California, no, no go. And that, that's actually true for natural gas generators in California too. No demand response. Um, Interesting. Can you, can, can you do other stuff with them, but not, not sort of interacting with the, the with the market? Markets. Right. Yeah. Can you talk just like, I, I think I remember us talking about this at one of the DER meetups. Someone actually quantified how, like, if you take the 15 public safety power shutoffs and calculate the amount of diesel fuel that'll be consumed during them it actually has like a significant effect on whatever emissions goals that California has. Right. So it, it, it works almost completely in opposition to whatever the state level goals are. Right. Yeah. I, I, I've done this not, not for the state, but for specific customers um, whom need to run when there are outages and need to run at full load, not just a handful. Like a, like a grocery store. So they're, you know, their product doesn't go bad, right? Yeah, exactly. And they can serve cut. And it turns out grocery stores are like really important to communities during outages too. And they like to run if they can, because it sort of builds a lot of goodwill with their customer base. So, so for the customers I've looked at this with, if, if you take that 15 events per year number seriously as sort of indicative of what the future might hold, and if you're in one of these high threat districts, um, it, it can, for, for their electricity related emissions, it can have almost a 5% impact, which is like pretty serious if you care about that sort of thing. Right. Um, right. But that, that's, that's a, that for, it's a meaningful number and it makes sense, right? Because California's grid is getting pretty clean and, and diesel is sort of the opposite. Right. Which also speaks to, you know, like I said before, that this conversation around what to do about the public safety power shutoffs has a far broader, you know, or, or how to get the, like Colleen said, uh, you know, the solar mandate on new developments, you know, the resiliency piece should be a fundamental part of the conversation. And, and yeah. I've always said kind of, I think resiliency is, is the killer app of DERs, if you will, because, you know, saving 5, 10, 15, 20% in your bills, which they can do, isn't as immediate as my power shut off three times last year. And I don't want that to happen again. Right. Yeah. So yeah, can, I agree. Res can you resilience is like the one thing that DERs uniquely can deliver. Right. More than utility scale solar or, yeah. or kind of all the, you know, it's clean and resilient. Right. And it does save you money. Right. Which um, allows it to charge an actual premium, which allows it to be potentially economic before it's on cost parity with the grid. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Or, or in the case of like my customers, it's, we don't think of it so much as a premium is when we look at the economics of a microgrid project, you know, you can include the avoided cost of diesel generator purchase and OPEX. And that's like meaningful because that literally is what they would be doing if they didn't go with this microgrid. 
Right. There, I think in, in, in commercial and industrial customers, there's probably more of an ability to, to say what the avoided cost is of not mm-hmm. having spoiled groceries or not losing ac- you know, access to data or being able to potentially run your company's website or something like, along those lines. So I think right in the commercial industrial space, there's avoided cost is easier maybe than in the residential space. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because it, in theory, it should be easier to quantify the, yeah, the avoided cost of outages. I find though that even if you do that exercise, it doesn't really travel through the organization very well. Mm. Like the person you did that exercise with and spent all this time and energy figuring it out suddenly believes it. Uh, but when they tell their <laughs> boss, they're kind of like, huh, what? <laughs> like, right. it, it's just too abstract <laughs> so, sort of, and it, it doesn't get deals done. Say if you're even a retail store and your power goes out for three days, customers won't be buying those three days. And so it affects like your total sales on the year. Or if you're a grocery store, you lose product. Yeah. The avoided cost is like one to yeah, run the diesel product, Right. Lost productivity, um, you know, th- things of that nature. And there are some instances where customers know that number because like they've really felt the pain. Right. I mean, we even know from like a GDP one. perspective, like macro yeah. blackouts <laughs> on the event, like they actually have a marked effect on productivity or, or sales sure. or, or, or. I, I guess all I'm saying though is ultimately the, the CFO of the organization you're trying to sell to like might not buy that number. Right. It, it, it depends. Maybe they've really felt the pain before. Maybe they haven't. And this is all sort of a, a forecast or something. So what we often use is, you know, given we go after folks who really, really care about uptime and, and power reliability, they're going to buy a diesel generator if they don't do this. So that's the avoided cost. Yeah, this persistent question of like, what's the value of resilience? And in my mind, it's it's what you're willing to do about it. That that's sort of the value. Can you talk a bit about what that conversation with the customer looks like? Like on the ground, they've experienced a public safety power shut off. They're not happy about it. You say that you're mainly speaking to the avoided cost of the diesel generator that they would be buying anyways. Like, so you're you're saying in a way that microgrids are being bought not sold like people are coming to you or, or they're going to buy no. diesel generators anyway. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm like saying. Like you have I'm, to track these customers down. Is there a lot of friction? Like how difficult is it to get in front of these people? Oh yeah. I mean, it's tough because basically, yeah. What one is they're definitely being sold, not bought. Um, although we have had way more inbounds than we used to um, after all of these events you know, largely it's a, it's an exercise of convincing someone this actually makes sense. And there's a big hurdle to get there because it's a, it's a non-standard solution, right? It just isn't sort of the mainstream to, to your point about sort of the value of resilience or avoided cost of buying generators, whatever. Um, 100% of our projects would not be justified if that was the only part of the equation. Um, Because we're sort of doing these projects as a service, right? So there's they're paying us over time to get this microgrid. And if the only thing you were getting in return as a customer was not having to have a diesel generator, this would be a bad deal because it's more expensive to have a microgrid than only use it for backup. Right? What can we do with this thing when the grid is online? How can we help save you money? Help provide services to the grid and give you resilience. And it's combining those things that sort of unlocks the microgrid value. Right. Proposition. So kind of the hook into the sale is the resiliency. That's how, that's why they pick up the yes. phone. But then the closing in a way is because of all these other great factors that they didn't know that a diesel generator can't provide. So it's not just this, you know, can you, can you talk a bit about 
Well, first, when we say microgrid, you're talking about solar battery storage and a backup gas generator, right? Which is better from an emission standpoint. And, and maybe how the value, the total value stack compares to a diesel generator. Like when you talk about what it's doing when the grid is on. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunately hard to talk about, not because I'm not an open book, but just because it varies so much from customer to customer. The, the cost of installing a microgrid is hugely variable and that the predictability of costs has been in the way of the industry scaling for a while, whereas rooftop solar is like far more predictable. And also the, the savings or grid services revenues these things can generate is, is super customer dependent too. It depends on you know their tariffs, their load profiles, whatever local utility programs there are, et cetera. But like I can sort of speak to a few like there's like three archetypal outcomes sort of one is like the sort of home run project where if we're, we're going to save you a certain amount we're going to generate a certain amount of grid services revenue and you're going to pay us a certain amount and the net of those things is like you know seventy thousand a year positive cash flow uh, so to that customer like that looks great right because versus a generator which you pay up front for and then you fuel and you maintain every year that's that's all red, right? <laughs> and <laughs> right. this thing is is in the black and like meaningfully, it's not like some tiny number, but it's a real number. Um, so that that's sort of the home run. The the second version is that marginal project, right? Where maybe it's in the black, but like not by much, just like five ten grand a year or something, which might as well be zero because performance every year can change a little bit, and that's still motivating because. The alternative is still in the red, right? The alternative is still buy something and then maintain and fuel it every year. Uh, and then the third archetype is actually you have to really want this and be willing to pay for it because every year it's going to cost you a little bit of money more than it otherwise would. Now that amount it costs you more might be equivalent to the diesel generator option. It might be a little worse, but you care about the sustainability. Those are kind of like the three tiers, you know, home run, marginal, negative. And I think all of them are still fairly competitive with the backup generator, um, just from a purely numbers perspective. Like I very rarely find myself in a situation in California where the economics we're looking at are like worse than a backup generator meaningfully. Um, and then when you add in sort of the other benefits, you know, sustainability and sort of like, not just reducing your utility bill, but stabilizing it, like getting some kind of more predictability I think there's a good pitch, but then what it really comes down to, if you're not in that home run project territory, is just, this is more complicated. It takes longer. I don't really quite understand it, so it's hard to risk assess it. Like all, all those kind of like non-spreadsheet mm -hmm. questions, which relative to a diesel generator are tough, right? Generator's easy. It's proven. Everybody knows how it works. The CFO is not going to give you any trouble for suggesting it. Like you're not going to look dumb at the board meeting when you like tell your company <laughs> this is a good idea. There's all that stuff. And, and that ends up being what we compete with most. The economics we can usually make work. It's all the other stuff. So we've tried to sort of tailor our product to that. But in general, if we want to see this stuff get deployed, microgrids and like cleaner backup and all of this, um, that's what we have to figure out, in my opinion. The, the costs and technologies are adequate and getting better every day. It's the customer perceptions, it's the time of deployment, it's the complexity, it's, it's all that. Is, do you think some of that complexity is due to the market design itself? Because I think this gets into you know this much larger conversation about how can we help 
DERs proliferate from like a policy standpoint. And so, you know, by utility region, by each customer, by the tariff they're on, all these questions, like, can you speak to one, basically it's the solar and the battery storage offering that puts the project in the black, right? And the, the generator is kind of tacked on. But can you speak to why that is from like a, a market standpoint? And then do you see any ways in which regulators could get involved to, to maybe make the, this more frictionless? Well, I get one thing to say up front is that the generator isn't necessarily just tacked on. Even in California, where generators can't participate in demand response, if they hit emission standards in the, you know, the AHJ, what is it, authority having jurisdiction, so the local sort of uh, emissions standards, um, they can run uh, just to reduce your bill, you know, for sort of like behind the meter type activities. Mm. They just can't participate in DR programs. Now, getting to those emissions is really tough. Like all of our systems have like selective catalytic reduction systems and stuff that like isn't on your normal generator. Um, but the, the, the difference is, you know, imagine, for example, you have a battery that's doing demand charge management, so helping shave a customer's peak. That the whole game there is sort of, you know, the customer's load goes above a certain amount, you start discharging the battery, and hopefully their load comes back down before your battery's empty. Otherwise, you'll have discharged your battery and not actually shaved that peak, and the demand charge will be set where it is. If it turns out you're 30 minutes off, right? And your battery's <laughs> almost empty and the peak is like still kind of there. If you're willing to run a generator, even just like 200 hours a year, like I'm not talking about running it often, you can sort of save the day on, on that, on those economics. So that's one thing. But in, in general, the, the market design could A, value DERs in a more holistic way and B, produce like something for the end user that's, less confusing but then at the same time there's still a huge customer education component too which is just a lot of folks just like don't even know this is really a thing you know if you have power reliability issues you get a generator what other option is there so i think it's both on the market design side i mean there's smarter people than me to talk about this but like i can just sort of mention a few things that i've encountered or, or thought about one is the the sort of the demand response regime in california coming from an East Coast perspective is, is weird. The, the utilities sort of run all of the demand response. There's no like ISO wide programs. So one, you're like learning a bunch of different programs that all like have different standards. And right, each utility region, you have to like relearn your whole model, right? Yeah, uh, but then two, they just tend not to be as uh, holistic as those run by ISOs. So like, mm. I think I'm like the only DER person out there who's like a PJM stan, but like PJM, <laughs> I can like do anything. Yeah. Like I can, you know, bid into hourly energy markets. I can provide ancillary services like, you know, frequency uh, regulation or uh, uh, synchronous reserves. I can uh, participate in capacity markets. There's all <laughs> this stuff I can do, right? And then it's up to me to figure out what's optimal what makes sense for my customer for the, like, there's a million things to consider, but like I sort of have all the options in the world. Right. And I can almost, I, I wouldn't say entirely, but almost be uh, on a level playing field with a big central power plant, uh, which is really cool. Um, now energy is cheap in PJM, so they make it tough, but, but um, <laughs> it, 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 it's cool in, in California. It's really not the case. Um, there's like a handful of demand response programs there. 
they're kind of these like chunky old school, like maybe we use you a couple times a year sort of things. There are ways to get beyond that, like with what the CCAs and load serving entities are doing in their recent like resource adequacy RFP, trying to get projects exposed to that kind of like quasi capacity market, but then also like bidding into real time market. There's stuff you can do, but it's all like, it just isn't, it isn't there. You know, it's well, just not at the same level that other ISOs have. Really so this is sort of, I think the discussion that, that I wanted to get into is like, as we brought up in the beginning, you know, New York Rev came out of Sandy. New York Rev is like, has this stated mission of creating a marketplace for these types of resources. I think the Northeast in general has been more about building market-driven solutions. So maybe adoption isn't as fast now as California is, but I think over the long run, like California may sort of run into issues with this more top-down approach. Like it doesn't feel like they're really building a market around it. What do you kind of see 10 years from now after all these public safety power shutoffs, we've, you know, scale has done great work along with a bunch of other great businesses in California. You know, where does, where does this all go? It's a really hard question to answer. I, I, I was sort of anticipating this before we started today. And I think what makes it so hard is, you know, California is dealing with like five other existential issues with right. the power sector right now. And so like how this is all going to like, you know, you put it all in the blender, like press the button, what comes out? I'm not really sure. So <laughs> I almost don't have an, an answer, really. It, it, it's really hard to say. I, I think it's possible the entire structure of California's power markets from, you know, the big ISO generator level stuff uh, to, you know, how folks are built. Um, is probably going to look really different in 10 years. Right. It, the, the situation, I think, demands it. And, you know, there's calls to restructure the big IOUs. I mean, and this, like, starts to pull in sort of the non-energy political issues of the mm-hmm. two. Like, it, it gets really complicated. So I, I, I don't know. I, I really don't have a good answer. Maybe Colleen has some better input there. Yeah, I mean, I think... And also not an expert on the sort of different marketplaces of California, but I know that they've been trialing these sort of demand response auction mechanisms or DRAM, right? As kind of the new Oh, great. New acronyms. New acronyms. <laughs> we always love a new acronym, uh, but a new way of approaching sort of how you procure demand response. And so that's allowed aggregators to play in the DR space. And it's still pretty small. Uh, I don't know the exact megawatts that they have, but I know it's definitely not, you know, tipping the scale at any point. But I do think that they're starting to think about some of the different ways that you play in a marketplace, because I agree that California taking, you know, the, we're going to have clean electricity, and we're going to make every, you know, new building have solar, and all of these things, they've really done this top down, sort of enforcement of making clean energy happen. But then when you start to get things like wildfires leading to people using generators and purchasing generators just for these, you know, days, and then to your point earlier, you have this increase in emissions without a proper market in place to allow DERs to play, it's going to make people's jobs like Junkins harder than it should because they don't have this plethora of options. And so I do think that we'll continue to see 
new mechanisms. I also think that with the rise of um, the CCA, right, the community choice aggregator where municipalities can kind of become the retailer for everyone in their town, which is the way that I understand it, right? They're procuring the power. They're sending the bills to the customer. Yeah, those are CCAs, yeah. Yeah. Uh, community choice aggregators. Right. So when, as municipalities have this ability, they are going to have to be able to coordinate a lot more across other municipalities who are also procuring power. And that's, I think, going to result in the need for more coordination in different markets in California. So almost like it's going to be a little bit of a recursive situation where you're mandating DRs from the top and then communities are sort of coming out and creating these CCAs and then you still have utilities with you know the distribution and transmission in between and all those different layers kind of happening at the same time is going to lead to I think probably some sort of restructuring. Something to address and what most of our conversations will probably come back to you know ISOs didn't used to exist. Utilities had to buy power from a private generator. That emerged into like actually fully functioning, fully competitive wholesale markets, right? With generators and load serving entities and all these people bidding in. And so where we really are right now is I think almost that like post-PERPA, you know, if PERPA's 1978, we're like 1985. Um, right now, like <laughs> this really painful of like DERs are starting to happen, but we haven't quite seen the implications yet and like how markets will fully form around them because they're so fundamentally different then what the PERPA generators looked like. I almost kind of think that the California like top-down approach isn't going to work in, in the long term. But what we'll see out of it is these almost really interesting like bottom-up phenomenons where, you know, I, I love- Like emergent uh, behavior. Ex yeah. Exactly, exactly. And because the, the top-down policy isn't, you know, structured in the right way or isn't like can't really get the job done. Because when you think of this distributed grid and it still has to stay balanced at all times, you can't, I, 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 my like bias and will continue to be so is you can't really do that in a centralized fashion. You need to create some sort of distributed means of like the way we've structured the ISO is very centralized. Maybe that doesn't work as well. But the point being though, is that you look at you know, there was that Twitter conversation around a guy had taken a picture. It was like his, he ran extension cords to his neighbor, right. For to, to share power during one of the, one of the public safety power shutoffs, which is this fascinating. Everyone was like, wait, those are private wires. Like you franchise rights. You can't do that. <laughs> Only utility can build wires. But it's like, if the utility can't meet the needs of these communities that are going to start probably building, you know, as more and more DERs start coming online, there's been conversations of like San Francisco wants to buy back their wires. Even like, mm -hmm. what about local townships that are affected by the transmission wires that are shut down, but they're not really in a high wind wildfire environment. At a certain point, are people going to say, screw you, we're going local. We got plenty of solar here and generators and, and the natural gas generators, their emissions aren't that bad. So we're going we're gonna to kind of go start islanding our grids, right? Or, or something to that effect. Like I definitely see this is going to be way more prevalent than people predict right now. Like I, I think there will be these emergent phenomena that, that sort of force, <laughs> like if we're not going to restructure markets properly, you know, the, the switching cost actually starts to make sense. 
Like, I don't believe in individual homes off-gridding or anything like that. But when you look on, like, on a regional basis, especially the regions with high wildfire activity or risks, um, the customers that will be most affected, how do kind of local communities, like, is, does everyone go over to Bob's house because he has solar and a battery uh, when there's a power? Like, yeah, like what kind of... <laughs> I think it's going to be fascinating. I know I'm sitting from like my non-wildfire affected house on the East Coast, so it's very easy for me to talk about this, but I do just sort of have this fascination around like we may be witnessing sort of over time how how the new grid is going to kind of be built in a way. I, I, I think that's a really interesting question, right? Because my my sort of ingoing assumption into like energy transition and DERs is that like, we're not getting rid of the grid. I think it's massively. No, and I don't think we are either. To, like to network all these assets right. and be able to sell and buy power and all, all this stuff. Right. So we don't have to build every little islanded system for both instantaneous generation and like annual peak. Right. right. Okay. And to, I said earlier, that is not how I, yeah, I, yeah. I view it either. No, I think I, markets are great. I want markets to support, you know, behind the meter. Yeah. And, and we need the wires to do that. But I think it's an interesting question in an environment where stuff like isn't properly valued and it's really messy. And there's like a strong signal, like while next year wildfire season is rapidly approaching, right? Like the, the, <laughs> the, the calendar keeps turning every day. Are, yeah, maybe some sort of non-optimal decisions start to get made because like people want to fix it. They just, they just want a solution, don't want to think about it anymore. It, it's interesting right. to consider that if that is like a cost of suboptimal policy environment that then you get suboptimal right. outcomes. People are just yeah. going to start solving the issue how they can like with the the means they have available to them, right? They right. don't really which care what the rules are. Exactly, which isn't going to lead to like an equitable solution, right? I mean, I don't think we've yeah, gotten at exactly. all into sort of the the equity side of of the wildfire situation, but I think we can probably all agree that, you know, wealthy people being able to build their own microgrids while people who are, you know, maybe less well off are sort of stuck, you know, either trying to find a community center or being out of power uh, isn't the way that I think any of us would want it to right. To happen and so it becomes this question of like how do you anticipate what those market challenges are and change policies and sort of help drs become something that is getting sourced sort of more across the board and like how yeah i don't have an answer to that solution so, no but. so that that's the fast this is like what everyone should be talking about though right <laughs> and like almost in a sense why we started this podcast because we're not happy with the conversation that is going on which is when you look at like all the arguments are on the table right now. You know, certain certain insurers uh, don't insure houses in uh, New Orleans now because of hurricanes or in wildfire territories, right? But we still have this idea, and like that's sort of accepted in a way. It's like, okay, maybe let's not live in these very high risk territories. Like, as humans, you know, I, I think I've said before, we used, to, you know, we've always moved to coastlines or rivers. Like, it's not weird that we geographically determine where we live but this sort of um sense that we can live wherever we want and we can get power wherever we want is how we used to build the grid right but now it's like a utility is carrying socialized risk right so people in you know sacramento or san francisco or maybe less areas that don't have as much risk are sharing the costs of people living in kind of far-flung wildfire territories right and 
from a, a, a macro view, like that doesn't really seem to make sense. Like maybe we should decide that if we're not going to insure a home there, why would we build a grid there that's causing the fires in the first place? Like, but then to Colleen's point, how do you balance that against, we can't be leaving people behind out of the modern economy by not, you know, not, they don't have power. Or like, that's not at all what I'm proposing. Like everyone's just off on their own. It's, that's why this question of how we structure markets is so important and don't do it in this haphazard way because we need to find a way to build the most optimal solution where people can make their own individual decisions and build DERs and all this great stuff, right? But we're yeah. also doing it in a way that benefits the collective, right? <laughs> or, or there still is a bulk grid and, and people still need to, they can't be paying 80 cents per kilowatt hour and these people are paying five cents. Like that, that right. doesn't make sense either. Totally. And I, th I think there is, I, I actually want to say it's in California, although I'm going to forget all the specifics of it, but I know that there was um, a non-wire solution that a utility was working on where they were essentially, there's this, you know, like really long distribution line that uh, went out a lot to this like one small community. And so their solution was to just build a microgrid in that community, you know, it could be funded by the utility because on net it was actually cheaper for everyone on the grid, for mm -hmm. the utility to sort of build and maintain a, a microgrid in that community than to have to constantly be upgrading this distribution wire, you know, on the certain cases. So I think they're still keeping them connected, but the idea is like, they'll be mostly procuring their own power. And then if there is an outage, it's bad. And so if you think of a public power shutoff for that community, they could easily disconnect, you know, de-energize that system and then still keep the town on during any public safety power shutoffs and it would be fine. And so it's, yeah, kind of an interesting question around how utilities, I guess, can help be part of that solution or also how you can find new ways of building grid infrastructure to allow, to serve all these people. Like you can, you can still socialize those costs. It's just a question of, do they need a wire running there? Right. To bring it back to sort of California, I was looking at some of the CPUC's reporting on the public safety power shutoffs and doing some of the math. And so between three and 5% of the customers who were shut off uh, were people that relied on sort of medical equipment that uses mm -hmm. electricity. And so I think, you know, we're going to have to figure out how you serve people equitably to make sure that, you know, those people who really rely on electricity for their livelihood survive, like, are, well, survive A, but really are able to sort of have access to that power and that we're thinking about sort of all of those risks. I agree that we shouldn't just let the sort of fear of equity allow us to socialize costs that don't make sense to socialize. Uh, I think it's just making sure that we're always continuing to talk. By building a decentralized system, their bills may actually end up cheaper and uh, the power doesn't go off, right? Um, totally. So so there is, there's like a... As long as we're we're setting the right goals and doing this in a responsible way, we need to experiment. Developers should be able to propose building private in infrastructure, like at least bring it before the POC. It's not only the utility that can do it, so that we can at least just start asking the question. Like we can start driving the conversation forward. What emerges, I think, in this organic way, may ultimately be better than like a, a top-down system design. Like I'll throw out there, I think if we ever had like a sensible federal climate policy, we could sort of do like a, a red red team, blue team sort of thing where like the federal government massively supports California in this like top down, just like build it and socialize it, get it done perspective. Also massively supports like New York and like let's build the like super 
awesome market neoliberal like wonderland kind of thing <laughs> and just like see what happens in both and then like combine them the lessons and deploy that throughout the rest of the country hey that's why states are great because we're do we're doing that all yeah, right, yeah. I think like it's so. Just, we have to do it faster. Like <laughs> right. we got to do it. Like exactly. we got to learn this. If we need yeah. to solve climate in twelve years, we need to figure out which one works sooner. Yeah, than Yeah, Rev has been years. like six years already, man. Like I know, like, <laughs> I know. We got, we're all we we're all waiting. And then there's Texas, which is a different. Uh, Texas, is a, we, you can never replicate Texas, though. That's the problem. <laughs> Anything that works in Texas, you can't be like, well, let's try this somewhere else. Right, just wouldn't, right. Would not work the same. So I mean. Hearing all of this, I think what we're talking about is, you know, moving things to a decentralized state makes sense, uh, which is makes sense because we're the DR Task Force podcast. But what we're going to talk about next is going to be about the technology blockchain. I think that's going to be really interesting to bring in because when we start talking about sharing power at more local areas, you need to think about how you have that communication technology available and what items and new markets need to be there and what new technologies can help provide that. So I'm excited to get more into that next. I think for now, you know, public safety power shutoffs have been a real game changer in the DER landscape. And I think we'll just continue seeing that in the future. And I'm excited to continue the conversation. Amen. It's going to be like a, what a, I think we're on a 40 year energy transition. So this is sort of day two of the conversation and we got a long way to go, but yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm excited I'm, to see just like one year from now. Right. It, I think like, it'll be very like different. Yeah. In December of 2020, how many customers have microgrids? You know, maybe they just went for backup generators. Maybe not much has changed at all. Like that, that I think that'll be really telling to like what, how this is going to play out the next decade. And yeah, ho hopefully it's, it's an exciting result. <laughs> Thank you for listening. We hope we captured the essence of the meetup. As always, if you have comments, come find us on Twitter at DER underscore task underscore force. Also, check us out at our website at DERtaskforce.com. It's where you can learn about and RSVP to future events, find podcast episodes, locate slides from past events, and a few cool other things. Our next episode will be on everyone's favorite blockchain. Rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform.